Well, great if you can see that passage open in front of you. We're going to work through verse, well, approximately verse by verse. Let me pray as we begin. Our gracious Father, cause us to be still before you and your word. Speak to us in the power of your spirit. Uh, Warn us of those things of which we need to be warned. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Tell us what it will be like to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And give us hope as we look to the future, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, it's our practice at Rock, you know this, don't you, if you come week by week, to, to work through books of the Bible bit by bit. That's how the books of the Bible were first received by these churches in the in the ancient world. A letter would arrive, the church would gather, it would be read out and considered, meditated on, explained. We try to recreate that. We, we've come now to the end of the, the epistle to the Ephesians, this letter to the church in modern-day Turkey, this kind of Roman settlement there. Uh, can you remember the beginning? Were you here when we started in Ephesians 1 a couple of terms ago? Bit by bit, we've worked our way through. If you, if you were here from beginning to end, well done, star. Secondly, I wonder if you can spot themes, other things that are really significant that come back again and again and again in this letter. I'm going to tell you the answer. There's perhaps a number of them, but, but the, the most important one probably is the church, the Christian church. It, it's to the point where the, the, the letter to the Ephesians is sometimes called the, the book of the church or the letter of the church. Uh, Ephesians 1, do you remember where we started this grand spectacle of the work of the eternal Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who worked to establish the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've gone our way through and traced the developments of the church until we come here to our final passage this morning, where we're back with the church again, at this time the church under attack, but standing firm. And as the Apostle Paul concludes the letter then, he he wants people to understand, well, not just the end from the beginning, though we'll see that that's important, but also uh, what the journey towards the end will be like for all those in the Christian church. Uh, To help us remember, here's our first of uh, three points. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. And for that, we're reminded of this great battle that takes place, all that Paul describes in the heavenly realms. Put on, verse 11, the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's quite a statement, isn't it? The struggle is real back, uh, if you can remember, just before Christmas, we did a little series where we looked at the promises of the coming Messiah, the promises of the coming Jesus that were found in the Old Testament. And one of them we saw was the promise from Genesis 3 that Jesus would be the one who would come and crush the serpent. Remember that vaguely? So we talked about Satan or the devil and his work then. We, We saw that Genesis chapter 3 is not just about the fall of humanity, though it is that. We see our first parents, Adam and Eve, tempted and they fall into sin. But, but it's a fall that extends even to the heavenly realms with the created angel, Satan himself. 
Uh, Isaiah 14 describes or appears to describe the motives that Satan had in those early moments. Uh, Above the stars of God I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. These are the words of the devil. His mission was to to, to overthrow the Lord God and take the throne of heaven for himself. So God casts him out. And Jesus, the eternal son of God in Luke 10, describes seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Again, in that sermon before Christmas, we saw how since that time, Satan has roamed the earth seeking to oppose the work of God, to oppose the Christian church. This is how the Bible always portrays him and it's that battle satan and his band of fallen angels set against the lord jesus christ and against all who belong to the lord jesus christ that's the battle that paul focuses on now although as i've highlighted in the point behind me verse 12 he calls it a struggle more than a battle perhaps i think to emphasize the effort that's required And in this struggle, we need, says Paul, the full armor of God because, verse 11, because of the devil's schemes. If you grew up with the King James Version of the Bible, can you remember what it says there? It's a much better translation. The wiles of the devil. That's a better phrase, isn't it? Well, Paul tells us about the the devil and his band of fallen angels. Verse 12 is this amazing list, isn't it? I, I take it that rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil. It's not a list of separate battalions with which the church is at war. It's really just a variety of terms for the same thing. Power, I think, is the key unifying theme there. Power, ruler, authority, force. Paul's very deliberate in his choice of vocabulary, isn't he? Satan is powerful to act. Now, uh, we want to qualify that, don't we? We we know that Satan's power, as he roams around the earth, uh, uh, confronting the church of Jesus Christ, we know his power is limited by the Lord God. In the Old Testament, we read the book of Job, and we see he can't do all that he, he wants. He's dependent on the permissions given by the Lord God. New Testament, we might go to the Apostle John and the book of Revelations, and in his visions we see that the devil constrained in what he can do. Satan's power is limited, but I guess here, verses 11 and 12, Paul wants to emphasize to us, Satan's power might be limited, but it's not zero. He is given some freedom to act, And his mission, with the freedom that he's permitted, is to seek and destroy the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Uh, It's not just that he's active now. You see verse 13? It's almost like his work will continue and build up. Just as the church grows and those in number who follow the Lord Jesus Christ grow and grow, so the opposition will grow until a final day of evil, verse 13 until that day when Jesus Christ returns and the battle ends once and for all. But it's not just a future thing. Even now, verse 16, do you see? Satan fires flaming arrows against the church. We ought to pause and think about that just for a moment or two. Those 
flaming arrows. That's a vivid metaphor. But what does it mean? What do those flaming arrows look like? What, what might that look like for us at Rock here today? Well, as we go through the Bible, we see lots of different forms of satanic opposition. Let me give you three that I think we see in the Bible and which we ought to expect to face today. Uh, first of all, accusations to strip assurance from the church. Again, we thought about this in a bit more detail before Christmas. We saw in the Bible that, that Satan loves to remind us of our sin, of our unworthiness. Who, who are you to think that the Almighty God would love you? Who are you to think that the Lord Jesus Christ would die for you? He says. And so strips us of our confidence of salvation. Now, we're going to see that the response is to stand firm in the gospel. Now, Jesus' death is sufficient even for me. I am loved because he died and rose for me. We'll think more of that later. But it's worth just noting when those thoughts occur to you in your head, when you feel that in your heart, if you feel unworthy, if you feel overwhelmed by guilt of sin, unloved and overlooked by God. Satan is at work. We're not going to panic. We'll see that as we go through. But that's an attack of the devil. We stand firm in the gospel. We can push him back. Uh, Accusations to strip assurance from the church. Idols to devalue the work of the church. If you've read through any of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it's a good exercise too. Just read through quickly... And just note down those moments when people refuse to follow Jesus or refuse to believe in him. What is it that's causing the the refusal? Why won't they follow Jesus? And as you write down the list, what you realize you're writing is a list of idols. Not little statues that people would put in their lounge and bow down to, but things that people cherish and love and desire and fight for and perhaps even fear more than God himself, more than Jesus Christ himself. And the Gospels are full of the list of the most common idols, not just back then, but today too. Family is there. People won't follow Jesus because of the cost to their family, a love of money, a love of worldly success. These are the things we see again and again, and things are no different today, are they? How easy it is for Satan to distract us to, to make the church unstable, to trip up the work of the gospel by making us think there are things that are way more important than the life of the church. Can I ask what, what keeps you today? What, what keeps you from devoting yourself to the work of the church, the work of the gospel? And if you're honest and can pause and mull that through, you're just listing idols, aren't you? It's the idols that distract and keep us from fully giving ourselves. I think that's significant because I wonder how much work we could do, or rather how much more work we could do as a church to engage with the community around us if we could put idols to one side and give ourselves to the work of Christ and his church, make that a priority. But, but Satan doesn't want that. He wants us to pursue other things first. He wants us to love, well, not Jesus Christ, but a career, let's say. Or, or to put our kids on a pedestal so that, 
or a black belt in karate and a cello lesson and learning to swim is just essential and anything less is not to love your kids properly. Or, 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 or to live for that four-bedroom detached house and that overseas holiday every year and that private schooling so that we have to work 60 hours a week so that the work of the church just drops down the to-do list so that it's almost insignificant. Satan uses idols in all of us to devalue the work of the church in the hearts of Jesus' followers. Uh, Third thing, and there might be many more that you can think of, but here's the three that I came up with. Persecution to cause fear in the church. I was very fortunate. As a young Christian man, I went to visit a friend who was working as a, a missionary in Central Asia. I'd I'd gone to meet with him, uh, a couple of guys that he'd be meeting with had become Christians. It was arranged that I would go and spend time with the three of them. When I uh, landed, the plane got there, I went to meet with them. We found just my mate was there. The other two guys had been arrested for disseminating the Christian faith. The secret police had monitored their emails and communication, and they were in prison. Uh, They were eventually released but that was long after I'd had to come back from Uzbekistan. I think I was 22, 21, 22. That was just a a terrible thing for them, but a brilliant wake-up call for me. The opposition is real. The opposition of Satan is nasty. And though Satan's work is limited, still sometimes his flaming arrows find their mark. And seeing the persecution was good for me because I had to think and pause and okay would I give up my home for the Lord Jesus Christ would I give up my work my career would I give up my family would I give up liberty just to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ or would the fear of persecution make me shrink back I I don't think we're going to face violent opposition in this country for some time But look, our freedom to speak in public, that's already being encroached on a bit, isn't it? Our freedom to meet in state-owned buildings like this school, I don't think we should be surprised if in 10 years that, that liberty is taken away from us. Our freedom to hold to and proclaim the Lord Jesus, but not just the Lord Jesus, proclaim the way of life that he advocated, already that's being threatened. But that shouldn't surprise us. Persecution will always follow the church. It's good to be forewarned by the Apostle Paul. We won't be caught off guard when accusations come at us or when we find idolatry disrupting the work of the church, devaluing the work of the church. We won't be surprised if persecution impacts us. We know to expect it. Satan's flaming arrows are flying at the church even now. It's useful to remember, though, just before we move on, that it is Satan, chiefly, who is at work in these struggles. Let's say, by way of an example, if one day the school should say to us, look, it's just not appropriate anymore for you to use the hall, that the the biblical teaching on sexual ethics has no place in our community, you can't come anymore. Well, this passage here in, in, in Ephesians 6 reminds us that ultimately the school governors, they're They're just pawns 
being moved on the board of, of war by Satan himself. Satan is the enemy of the church, not the school board. We can love the school board. We can forgive the school board. We can do good to those on the school board, even if they do us wrong, because they're not the enemy. Satan is. Uh, what we need, says the Apostle Paul, since the struggle is real, is the full armour of God. The full armour of God. You've perhaps heard on the news this weekend that 90,000 NATO troops are heading to Germany at the moment for military exercises. It's an operation called Steadfast Defender, and the drills are said to be the biggest ever staged in our generation. And we understand what that's about, don't we? We're not foolish. As war in Ukraine continues, of course, European governments fear that 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 will spread, that Russian troops will press into Eastern Europe and perhaps beyond. Is, is that frightening? It's for me. I'm a little bit frightened by it. I can't believe that, that that this might be the case. But I didn't really think Russia would go into Ukraine at all. I was wrong about that. My boys are conscription age. I am a little frightened, I'll be honest. Look, we don't know the future of Europe, but the Apostle Paul is clear that it's really important that you and I know the future of the church. There's a danger that we quickly dismiss the opposition of Satan and his armies unnecessary. We just play it down. That's a danger. We mustn't do that. There's a danger too, though, that we overplay the strength of the opposition we face in the church. Did you see this in the Cambridge News the other day? Those beautiful, wonderful little delivery robots that roam around my street stared down one another. There was a standoff that could not be solved. Neither would go forward, neither would retreat to equally powerful or powerless foes at a standstill. That's not the case with the church, though, is it? It, it, Not as Paul portrays it. We need to be alert, but we mustn't ever think of Satan as being a, a truly equal opponent to the Lord Jesus Christ. Alert, but not afraid. At verse 10, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. There's an encouragement. Put on the full armor of God, verse 11. Again in verse 13, you can take your stand, verse 11 says Paul. You may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, verse 13, to stand. There's a confidence in the way that the Apostle Paul writes. Satan is not an insurmountable enemy. We ought to be alert. We need the armor of God. We must stand our ground but we know too the end from the beginning, and he won't win. Uh, over the years, uh, the church has panicked at the thought of this spiritual battle, uh, and it, in its way invented all kinds of weird responses to these satanic spiritual attacks. Fast for a month, the church has said at times, pray uh, loudly in tongues, weep and wail. It's interesting, none of those things are here in Ephesians 6. What's striking about this this description of the armour we're to put on 
is almost how normal it is for Christians. I take it that Paul has in mind a kind of regular Roman centurion and he kind of lists the armor that everybody would have known about and uses it to denote different aspects of the Christian faith. I'm not convinced we're supposed to ponder why this is linked with this. We're not supposed to think, why is a belt linked with truth, verse 14? I I think it's more a whole package that's going on here. Roman soldier has a well, a belt and a breastplate, verses 14, 15, 16, covered sandals, a shield, a helmet, a sword. Well, look, says the Apostle Paul, for you and I as Christians in the church, what is the armor we need? It is the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14. It is his righteousness which is given us by faith, verse 14. The armor we need, verse 15, it is the gospel which brings us peace with God and peace with one another within the church. The armor we need, verse 16, is faith in the gospel which renders all satanic attacks ultimately useless. The armor we need, verse 17, is the salvation won by our Savior at the cross and the Spirit who lives within us, bringing God's word to life for us. I don't, I don't want to downplay the, the significance of these things. This is the armor which enables us to stand firm against the greatest attack the church will ever face. These things are really important. But I want you to see as well, they're not weird. These are just the basic elements of the Christian faith, aren't they? The basic disciplines of the Christian faith. It would be odd if we didn't see these things in any New Testament church. They are, at one and the same time, both wonderfully miraculous gifts of God, but if if I can put it like this, they're also wonderfully mundane elements of church life. Embrace the Bible, the word of God, which is the truth of Christ. Hold to the gospel of Christ and him crucified, by which you are made righteous, and let that righteousness be your protection. Live at peace with God and his church through the gospel. Hold to the faith of the apostles. Delight in your salvation. That's the armor of God. Satanic opposition, well, he may throw accusations us that, that prompt doubts, worldly idols who put in our way to make us lose sight of what's really important. He might bring persecution so that we fear, but the remedy to all these attacks is to hold firmly to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel, hold firmly to his church. That's it. With a lively and active faith. If there's one thing in particular that Paul stresses, it's prayer, isn't it? That gets a whole paragraph to itself, verses 18, 19, and 20. The Spirit of God who lives in you causes you to pray. So pray, verse 18, on all occasions, says Paul, with all kinds of prayers. Pray for the church, the Lord's people, verse 18. Pray for the work of the church, verse 19. Pray for people like the Apostle Paul who travel and make the gospel known. The church is called to stand firm, but can you see there's a sense in which if we're to take ground... And win people for Christ, it must be prayerfully that the gospel is shared with those around us. I think that emphasis is really wonderful. 
who are our special troops, who are the, who are the SAS in the life of the church. It's Joyce, isn't it? Sitting in a chair at home, praying for the whole home group every day. You'd never qualify for the SAS, would you, Joyce? But you would in the church. That's what we need. Are you disciplined in prayer for the church, for the work of the gospel? Are you as disciplined in prayer as a soldier would be cleaning and readying his rifle? Are are, are you ready in prayer to protect the church from the attacks of the evil one? You know, we laugh at Christmas, don't we, and say, uh, you know, there's a measure of love, isn't there? You can put a, you can put a pound sign to it. That's the, the game our boys play. Or you love us 20 quid, mum and dad. Very funny. But the funny thing with prayer is, it, it, we do have a metric that's really easy to measure so that we can see what a priority it is or isn't for, for our church. And it's just how well attended our prayer times are when we come together as a whole church, when we stop all our other activities. Okay, we're not going to have home groups this week. This week, our priority is we're coming to do battle. We're going to come and pray. We're going to do battle with Satan. We, we see who's here. We see who's not. We see if it's a priority. We see if it's not. We see if swimming lessons are cancelled out the diary that week. Or we see if they're more important than coming to prayer and do battle. I want to say, come and pray with us. The armour of God is really important. Come do battle. Come pray with us. Make it, a, make it a priority above all else. Finally, briefly. The outcome is certain. This, this struggle is real. The armour is essential, but we need not fear. We must not fear. Because the outcome is given... It it was won that first Easter, wasn't it? You know that. Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't be overwhelmed with fear about Satan roaming and coming after you. Christ died that first Good Friday and he rose that first Easter Sunday. He's won. He won. He will come again. And when we looked at the visions of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, we've seen already Satan cast into the lake of burning sulfur on that final day when Christ the Lord establishes his perfect rule and banishes all opposition finally and forever. The church victorious will be gathered home on the final day. Jesus promises it and he is good to his word. Look, if I do your funeral, or if if I go first and you do my funeral, we're not going to say, are we, possibly, maybe, perhaps heaven, that will have no place in what we talk about. There is a battle, but the victory is already won by the Lord Jesus Christ. These are just the skirmishes playing out until the final day. At my funeral, at your funeral, we'll say he is with Christ now. And so as the Apostle Paul brings this epistle to a close, he moves from the battlegrounds of heaven to the day-to-day life of the church. And so he can say with the utmost confidence, verse 23, peace to the brothers and sisters, even in the face of this struggle that goes on, peace 
and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love the Lord Jesus with an undying love. Amen and amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, keep us from downplaying the work of Satan as he opposes the church. Keep us from overplaying it too. Help us have confidence to stand firm in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ now and to the end. For we ask in his name. Amen. Amen.